Well, it is a great day outside and inside the church. The weather, temperature's going up, and the temperature's going up in church too. Turn to the person next to you and say, God's about to do something good for you. <laughs> got to believe it. You got to have anticipation that we're not just going to go through the motions, but that potentially God could do anything. He could change your life today. You never know what he's going to do. I want to say hello to Elk River, Maple Grove, and Spring Lake Park. And we're so excited about all that God is doing in each of our campuses. God has the best things around the corner. The best is still yet to come. Amen. As we go into part four or connect four, week number four, the title of my message today is Everyday Purpose. Everyday Purpose. And I uh, just want to remind you that we've been talking about how disconnected the world is and how we're disconnected even feeling at times, and we're searching for connection. We're f searching for meaning. We're searching for purpose. We're searching for resolution and, and broken relationships coming together. And, of course, as we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, um, Paul points toward the group of people that Jesus is the starting point. He's the centerpiece that pulls everything together in our relationships, in our careers, in our bodies. He takes disconnection and makes connection. And we're all, in a sense, looking for our puzzle pieces to fit together, for the picture to form. And at times we feel like we're just the individual piece of a puzzle and we can't figure out how it's all coming together and we get frustrated and that frustration kind of um, moves out of our heart and either, either we explode on the people around us or we implode and we have a difficulty internally and we become something we wish we were never uh, um, um, with our attitudes, we feel like, man, who am I? Look in the mirror and go, that's not the person I wanted to be. And we feel disconnected from our, even our identity. And, of course, we've been looking at how the scripture says that Jesus pulls it all together. He puts us in a family. We're part of one body. And, and he begins to speak if, in Ephesians, Paul does, is he challenges the church to see themselves differently. You're now a part of one body. No matter what you came from, you're a part and connected to the body. The church is the body of Christ. We need each other. Turn to the person next to you and say, I need you. So he says we need each other. And then as we move forward, we need to understand it's not just about what happens in the church. It's also about what happens outside the church in our world on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. See, we need to discover how do I connect my Sunday to my Monday? How do I connect my Sunday morning Bible God experience to the rest of my life. They're not to be disconnected. It's not like I have a church life, I have a work life, I have a friend life. No, Jesus needs to be connected to all the parts of our life if we want to see all the parts successful. Amen? And so he begins to speak to us about those things. In a sense, he's saying Jesus is the designer of your life and he designs plans for you every day. That's what he does. He designs plans for you every day. We've got the puzzle on the platform and, and uh, looks like it's all coming together and uh, my friends are trying to figure out how to fit these pieces in here. But at the end of the day, they got pieces and the, there's the puzzle, but they want the end product to look like the front of the box. I mean, ultimately their dream is that it would look like the front of the box. And here's what we have to discover and maybe even have to move toward is learning that the individual piece that we are 
Even though we feel disconnected, we've got to believe that Jesus has a purpose for us. Our shape, our design, our personality, our story. And he has a way of even taking the misshapen parts of our story, the things that we screwed up, and fitting it all together so that at some point it fits into the puzzle. We have to trust that he has purpose to every part of our story to get there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. He, in a sense, says, you are exactly who I want you to be. I've shaped you. You are my masterpiece. And he's working on us, and he's shaping us. It says uh, he created us anew in Christ Jesus. Even if we've messed it up, he starts a new creation project on us, a new construction project up on us. I like to say I have a construction sign on my life at times of my life. God is still shaping me and molding me, but ultimately it's because we are his masterpiece. I want you to turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye, and say, you are God's masterpiece. (laughs) So if if God is into us, he's shaping us, and he has plans for us, then we have to also think about where... Where are those plans and what do those plans involve? Well, with God, most of his plans involve people. In fact, God is more interested in people than our accomplishments. We can get all the trophies in the world. We can get all the accomplishments, all the degrees. We get as much money as we want, but that's not going to impress God. I love what Bob Goff tweeted this week. He's an author I really like. He says, what dazzles God isn't our accomplishments, it's our love. I love that because for God, it's not about how much we stack up at the end of the day, how much is in our bank account. When God sees you and he sees me as his masterpiece and we are showing love to other people, we are Jesus to other people. When we're loving and serving each other, that's when Jesus just smiles. That's why he just smiles on us because that's what he's interested in. So listen. God's plans will be intertwined with the people in your life. You can't just say, well, God, what's your plan for my life on Sunday? And disconnect his plans from the people in your life. Well, you don't understand the people in my life, Pastor Nate. Whoo, they're, they're tough. They push my buttons. They don't love Jesus. Well, I'm telling you this. He has shaped your life, the whole puzzle picture together in such a way that he will involve your plans with those people. He doesn't want to just ship you off to another state, another place, to another country, and start over. No, he wants you to be with those people that are in your life. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? You'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone. Everybody say everyone. Because there's other people involved in what Jesus is saying in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see 
so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. Real quick, salt was not uh, the flavor of the world, okay? In Minnesota, our, our, uh, our spices are salt and pepper, right? As we're not real spicy in Minnesota. I, I like to add a few things in once in a while. It wasn't, it wasn't salt like we would think about it nowadays. Salt was the refrigerator of Jesus' day. It was where they would pack meat in. It would preserve things longer than it would and it would decay if it didn't have the salt packing in. And Jesus was literally looking at people and he was saying, you are the salt of the earth, not of the earth, the ground, but of the people. And he was saying, what hope do the people that are in your life have if you aren't salty? Pastor Nate said, I could be salty today. (laughs) Yeah, a different kind of salty. Your life, your prayers, your witness, your example Make a difference in the lives of the people that you're around. You matter to them. Why? Because if you remove the salt, they have no hope. You take the light, Jesus uses the other term, you're the light of the world, out of the darkness, what happens to the darkness? The people are in darkness. Jesus is saying, I want you to be bright. I want you to be brilliant. I want you to be like a city set on a I want the light to go where people are. The light matters. You matter. So Jesus is saying, just like Paul is saying in in Ephesians, your purposes are are connected to other people. It's not just what happens between your two ears on a Sunday morning. There are always other people involved. It's about them too, not just you. So God has a plan for our lives. The plan is fulfilled a step at a time, a day at a time. It's a process in which no piece goes unused. Every piece is used. God will use everything you've gone through. Romans says that God works all things together for the good of those that love him. God has a way of taking even our stupidest decisions and weaving them together and making it beautiful. He'll use us, okay? So whoever, wherever you are, whoever you are with, whatever you are doing, God has a plan, a purpose, a calling, a destiny for you and the people around you. I like to say this, a life of purpose isn't based on a few events, but thousands of normal moments during normal days with normal people. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm trying to bring this connection thing to to the landing point today because we're going to talk about practical relationships. But this this is what I want you to catch. We can't disconnect our lives as if God's not a part of every part of our story. He actually is a part of every part of your story. At home, at work, at school, everywhere you go, he wants to be involved. And if we let him, if we open our minds up to the possibility that perhaps God is interested in what you do, not because he, he's into science and you hate science class or, or, or because he's into uh, the art of, of, of making food because you're in the restaurant business or, or that you're into uh, um, agriculture or whatever. He's not interested in those things just for the sake of interest. He's interested because there are people in that world that he is interested in. You're hearing what I'm saying. So God is going to take your purpose and it will be connected to people. 
Say that with me. God will take my purpose and he will connect it to people. That's what he will do, okay? Ephesians chapter 5. Now, get your Bibles out because we're going to go through lengthy portions of text. Because Paul then begins to give practical places where there are connections, where we need to see God as a part of our story. And if we do involve and take his advice on some of these things, I'm not even going to go through some kind of family seminar and relationship seminar. You can get your ideas from some self-help section online or the Kindle bookstore or something like that. But I want to just read the text. And if we do the things that the text says in this letter, then things will be connected. Okay, so we'll start with chapter 5, verse 15. It says, so be careful how you what? Live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of some opportunities. Ever said every? Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. Don't be stupid. But understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's beginning to say everything. Ever said that with me? Everything. So he's saying make the most of every opportunity everywhere. It's everything, okay? Now, Paul then begins, begins to give us specific relationships that we need to be concerned with. The first one is marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm going to move on here in a second. But it says, submit to one another, right? Uh, that word submit seems to have been removed from many people's dictionaries in modern America, Because it maybe was misused or people misused it. But it's in the Bible. And the word submit is actually one of respect and one of relationship. For if we can learn to submit, we can learn to be in relationship with and respect one another's gifts and the diversity of talents. In any relationship, including marriage, the people are different. They bring different things to the table. And Paul says it's important for you to submit to each other. My wife has a great definition of submission. She talks about the many things that she's concerned about or thinking about and doing. And, of course, you know, we have a shared bank account as a married couple. And uh, whatever she thinks about buying, whatever she thinks about doing with money, she's spending my money, right? No, she's spending our money. So when she's thinking about these things, if she keeps it independently in her own head and she doesn't share those things with me, it will hurt our marriage. So she needs to submit it to me. Now, submitting could be as simple as taking a test in class and then taking it to the front of the room to the teacher and submitting the form, the the test. Submitting is not saying you rule over me. It's not You're the boss. It's saying, I want to let you know what I'm thinking about. I'm submitting this thought, this idea to you. What do you think about it? Submission is mutual, according to Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another. And why do you do that? Out of reverence for Christ. And you know why? 
Because Jesus is interested in that relationship staying strong and having integrity. And there are times when you don't want to submit to each other, right? There are times you don't want to share things with each other. But if you are committed to Jesus, he wants you together. And out of your reverence for him, you will submit to each other. Verse 22. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now, why did Paul have to write that? Because it's not easy. It's not easy because we don't want to submit. I'm just talking to wives right now, but in relationships, sometimes we don't think he's worth listening to. Sometimes we disrespect him because he's not worthy of respect. And so we can get it in our head that uh, maybe... Maybe I'll only like him, love him, respect him if he does certain things for me. And we can get a list involved, but Paul says, I want you to think about it through a different lens. How did Christ, as the head of church, want his church to submit to him? Do you think Jesus wants his church saying, what do you want, Lord? You think the church should be listening to Jesus' input on what we're doing? Yeah, we need to stay connected to Jesus, right? We need to be connected to him, in relationship with him. And so essentially Paul is saying, don't live an independent life. You're not just roommates. You need to be connected to each other. And it's like the, the zig and the zag. You, need, you bring different things together, but it's like a zipper that comes together. You need each other. So do it because this is what Jesus did with the church. Now I'm going to let the wives off the hook here, and I'm going to go to the husbands. All your husbands, pull your toes in. Because Paul talks a lot more to the husbands. He says this for husbands. This means love your wives just as, everybody said as, Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He goes on to say it. He gave up his life for her. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ cares for the church and we are the members of of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. I say amen to that. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Whoo! So he goes off because sometimes we need to tell the guy a little bit more until he gets it, right? So he says, we're to love, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He died for the church, Jesus did. He died for people that didn't deserve that love. He did it after being insulted, 
He had only loved people, and then he was crucified. So Jesus did that. He, he did that, and he did it in such a way as for the purpose of the wife feeling being spotless. Now, there's other uh, language in here that's wrapped up into the identity of the church. It's a theological piece that I'm not going to preach on today. But I do want you to catch what Paul is saying. In your marriage relationship, you are to make sure that you love a certain way. And he ends that little portion of, of the scriptures. He says, so I say again, verse 33, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now he tells them two different things. He says the man should love his wife. You know why he says the man should love his wife? Because it's not natural to keep loving. Love is a verb. Hello? It's not a thought. I love you, baby. Those are words. They're not actions. Love is a verb. I'm going to break out the old DC talk song on you. All right? It's a verb. And we are supposed to continue to love. Okay? And he tells the husband, you need to keep acting in love. Actions. Okay? Well, she doesn't respect me. No, you love first, okay? Then he says this. He says, then the wives, what should they do? The wife must respect her husband. Woo, but you don't understand, Pastor Nate. He's not worthy of respect. I'll respect him when he gets his act together. And so we're separate. We're separate from each other. So what Paul says is, I'm going to take your two heads, I'm going to, Hit them together. I'm going to get you, get you together here, and I'm just going to, I'm going to get you thinking straight. You need to understand this. Husband, when you learn to love repeatedly the way she needs to be loved, and it's a verb, and it's action-oriented, and it's ongoing, it's not just at the wedding day, and it's not just when she gives you what you want. You love repeatedly. Your love for her will motivate her to respect you. Wives, when you learn to respect your husband before he loves you, your love for, your respect for him will motivate him to love you back. It's a circle that requires both of us doing those things. I almost was tempted to have you turn to the neighbor, but that's probably not a really good moment to do that. We need to love and respect each other. And then he moves on to the next relationship. Let's get out of that one. The child and the parent relationship. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. All right, children, there is no expiration date on this. It's not like you can say, I'm 16, I got my driver's license, I don't need to honor my parents anymore. And it's not like you can say, I'm 35, I've got my own kids, I don't need to honor my, my father and mother anymore. And it's not like I'm 75 
My parents are gone, and I don't need to honor my father and mother anymore. There's no expiration date to this. But it speaks of honor. And I'd like you to think of it in terms of honor versus dishonor. You see, it's much easier in our culture to dishonor people. And the easiest way that we dishonor is when somebody says something nice about somebody we know, and we come up with information that disproves their niceness. And we like to say, oh, yeah, but you don't understand what they're really like. And if somebody's talking to you about your parents and they ask about your parents, do you honor your parents with what you say or do you dishonor your parents? A lot of it has to do with what comes out of our mouth. It's not necessarily what's in our head. You may have gone through abuse. You may have had difficult circumstances. You might have had a dad that abandoned you, but you are still to honor them. That doesn't mean you agree with everything that they did. You let God be the judge. You be the one who honors, and then there's something that happens with it. There's a promise. Things will go well for you. But when you are living in a state of dishonor and you wonder why your other relationships aren't working, things aren't coming together, I'll ask you just to check yourself and go, am I honoring my father and my mother? And obviously that spreads to other categories of people and authorities and that kind of thing. But Paul starts with the ones that are closest to us. We're to honor them. And that does not change. We need to always honor. It doesn't mean we always agree. And it doesn't mean we always go along with. There are times to get out of a house. If you're in abuse, call the police. Whoa, that just got serious right there, didn't it? But it's true. There are times you honor by doing the right thing, not by tearing down an individual. Okay? And then it says you will have long life. Let me just ask you the question. If you don't honor your father and mother, what happens to you? He says what happens to you if you honor, what happens to you if you don't? I'll let you think about that on your own. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So he says, don't provoke your children. Don't push the buttons And I I think there are many different things that push buttons nowadays. But perhaps sometimes when we're in relationship in a home uh, and we've got parent-children relationships, sometimes the familiarity means that we're quicker to be angry than we are to do the right thing. And, of course, Paul says is that we are to receive our instruction from the Lord. So making sure that whatever comes out of us in our interaction isn't our anger our bitterness, our frustration, or the overflow of a frustrating day at work, to make sure what comes out of us is actually for the Lord. You know, the first and primary responsibility of a parent is to train up children so that they can serve the Lord for their whole life. So we get into our daily experiences. Often we draw from the wrong emotion. We pull it from the wrong bucket, if you will. And he's saying, in a sense, make sure that you're drawing from the Lord. That means you got to have a daily prayer life, people. You got to empty out yesterday. You got to empty out the end of a work day. And you got to receive from something from the Lord. It's not going to work just to come to the altar and ask Pastor Nate to pray for you. 
You need to have a daily time with the Lord where you're receiving from him so that you're parenting out of what God gives you, not out of what the world gives you. Oh, I'm about to preach up on you now. you got to draw upon that. Don't provoke them. By the way, you know, the biggest thing that actually provokes uh, any relationship and irritates people nowadays is neglect or ignoring people. And the number one challenge that we have is with our phones. You know, I watch parents all over and they're like, teenagers today, they don't listen to anybody. All they do is look at the phone, look at the phone, look at the phone. Yeah, and then they come home and they watch you looking at your phone all night long. And then you want to call them out on it and not deal with yourself. Somehow I just think, you know, I measure claps sometimes. The teenagers were clapping a lot louder right there than, than the parents were. The third relationship, Ephesians 6, 5, is our workplace relationships. It says, slaves... Obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you as slaves of Christ. Do the will of God with all your heart. One of the interesting things about this text is many would look at it, and it's so foreign to use the word slave in American culture nowadays. Of course, we have it in our history, um, a horrible part of our history. But in Paul's day, well, he's speaking to the Ephesians. Um, this was more like our modern boss-employee relationship. It was more about where we work. It could be about uh, in, if you go to school, your teacher, your principal, your administrator, and the student. But it's, a, it's in that context. Many people in those days had a contract, if you will, that was like a slave, but they had their own house. They lived wherever they wanted to live, and then they worked for their quote-unquote master. Some of you feel like you work as a slave for a master, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's actually addressing our workplace relationships. And one of the things that he, he says in here in verse 5 is he says that we are, to, we are to obey with deep respect and fear as and serve them as we would serve Christ. I don't know how many of you actually approach your life and your relationships with your authorities, whether they be bosses or they be the police car that pulled you over because you're going too fast or be your teachers. But can you see those people that God has brought into our lives as Jesus? Can you serve that person like you would want to serve Jesus? That's what Paul is saying. He says do it all the time, not just when they're watching you. I think that employees, Christians as employees should be the best employees. In public and in private. I think what comes out of our mouth should be glorifying Jesus. I think students in our schools, middle school, high school, college students, that are Christians should be the best students. Well, I didn't hear a strong amen like I heard a clap just a few minutes ago. I think that they should be the type of people that give their all. We should strive to be that. That's what Paul is saying. Because ultimately it says as slaves of Christ. As those that work for Christ to do the will of God with all our heart. We really work for Jesus, not the person that gives us our paycheck. We work for Jesus. Come on, somebody. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. He's the one that provides anyways. When we have a job or we go to school, we're not doing it just like everybody else. We're serving as under the Lord. 
And when you serve him, you get all his resources back. But when you walk away from that and you begin to serve yourself or your own selfish motives, then you have disruption. You have disconnection. And you wonder why God's not helping you. It's because you're not following what he told you to do in his word. Well, that was pretty strong, Pastor Nate. It's just the the Bible, okay? God has purpose for us at work, and we are to do the will of God. Friends, in your lifetime, you're going to spend about 150,000 hours at work. That's 40% of your life. I think God is interested in that 40%, not just your hour on Sunday morning. Verse 7, work with what? Enthusiasm. Work with what? Work with what? Come on, we got to be enthusiastic with what we do. It's Monday morning, students. You get to go to math class. Yes. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do whether we are slaves or free. Christians need to be enthusiastic about what we do. Not apathetic, not with a bad attitude, not passive aggressive. Our reward isn't determined by our status or our role. Verse 9, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So whether you're the owner of the company You're the boss, or you're the one that's working under someone, or you're the teacher, or you're the student. You and I are working as under the Lord, and he loves everyone. Don't threaten if you're in authority, and God won't favor one person over the other, neither should you. Remember, you are God's masterpiece at work and at school, and he has a purpose for you at the beginning of every day. I want to pause right here because... I think we should approach our day different. I'm going to give you a 60-day challenge. 60 days. For the next 60 days, every time you go to school, every time you go to work, I want you to make a declaration under your breath, undercover, like a spy, if you will, over the place that you go to school or you go to work. And it's, uh, it's found in your bulletin today. I want you to take your bulletins out. And it's perforated on the edge. And you can pull it off like a bookmark, if you will. And this is a declaration that I want, because if you approach where you go and you want to benefit that place, you can begin to declare this like a prophetic statement over the place that you go. And uh, this is what it says. It says, I declare God's favor and prosperity over my workplace, God's blessing over my boss and coworkers, that this will be a place of joy, peace, and unity, safety and health for employees and their family members, that my workplace will value what God values. Okay? So I want, yeah. So you can, you can put different words in there if you're a student. God's blessing over my teachers and fellow students. Uh, you can put what you want. But essentially, this says a lot. This actually, I, we, we borrowed from Pastor Sam Reifkokel, who was here for Greater Faith Weekend in January. And uh, he had his congregation do this. And he, he was telling me over lunch, he said, Nate, you just won't believe it. He said, I've got 
so many people that go to work at UPS, they go to a school, they, they're a Fortune 500 company, top and multimillionaire. It doesn't matter who they are. They started doing this in our congregation. And he said as they did it, they, at first it, was, it felt dorky uh, to say it, to think it. Um, they put it somewhere where they would remember to do it every day. But they began to declare it. He said, my people, their heart began to change towards their coworkers. They started to see that they were there on God's purposes, his plans. And it wasn't about them just getting a raise or having a paycheck. That was their place of purpose. And so they would declare it over their workplace. In fact, why don't you uh, put it in your hand. And I, I want you to read it out loud right along with me. Ready? Here we go. I declare... God's favor and prosperity over my workplace. God's blessing over my boss and co-workers. That this will be a place of joy, peace, and unity. Safety and health for employees and their family members. That my workplace will value what God values. It's amazing what can happen no matter where you go. How, if you partner with God and his purposes and his mission, how God will open windows you could never Imagine. The last one I want to give you is Paul then spends time focusing in on there's another relationship in our world. And he wants to disconnect us. And it's the devil. And starting with verse 10 of chapter 6, Paul begins to say some things that actually I, I want you to hear today before we're done. He says, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. What is he saying here? He says that there is a devil and we're to be strong, okay? Not there is a devil and we should freak out and be afraid. This is not some Hollywood horror film where everybody dies, okay? Paul is saying right out of the gate, you are strong if you're smart. And you have an enemy that's going to be at work that's fighting against you. Okay? Be strong in the Lord, he says. Listen, resistance isn't necessarily a sign that you are out of God's will. It might indicate that you are doing exactly what God wants you to do. Some of you are flight people, fight or flight. Bad things happen. Things are frustrating. You don't, you're not getting along with somebody. You're like, God's will isn't for me to be here. I need to get out. Well, maybe... Maybe just the resistance you're facing is a sign you're exactly where God wants you to be and there's a battle taking place. Sometimes your frustration is not about you. It's an attack on the people that are in your life and God sent you to make a difference. Verse 13, excuse me, verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly realms, heavenly places. What is he saying? It's not flesh and blood. That argument you have, that frustration you have with somebody at school or at work or in your family, it's not what you see. There's an unseen thing going on here. And there are literally evil rulers and authorities in the unseen rule, world, he says. Mighty powers in the dark world. Don't make a mistake. Your frustration with people as the source of your problem, it could be the unseen world, not the people. So what does Paul say? Freak out, run home, ask Jesus to come back quickly. 
No, what he says is he wants us to stand guard and stand our ground. Verse 13, therefore, everybody said therefore. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, which you will have a battle, you will be sta- still be standing firm. Come on, somebody. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He says your goal is to fight, to stand ground, and you got to use your armor. You aren't just using, uh, you know, good self-help practices on how to be nice to people and how, how to get along with somebody. You also have to have spiritual armor. And then he says this in verse 18. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So as you go into your work week, as you go into your school week, as you go into your Monday, you are to go prepared and ready so that when you have your freak out moment at 11 o'clock tomorrow, you're not mad at the world, ticked off because somebody said something about you, You're not going to get so caught up in what's going on, you're going to step back and recognize, wait a second, my battle isn't against these people. There's a spiritual battle taking place, and I'm going to win this battle because I have the armor of God. I've got the helmet of salvation with me. I've got the belt of truth. I've got the breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to win this battle. I'm going to stand. And not only am I going to win it because I've had moments where I have lost it, but I am going to partner with the Holy Spirit. For I can pray in the spirit, not just in the sanctuary, not just in the church worship service, but I can pray in the spirit next to my locker at school, when I'm at the lunchroom with my friends, when I'm spending time at work. I can pray in the spirit and he will take the sword and he will help me swing it to win the battle. Can I get an amen? You and I can win the battle. Puzzle's done. And that's what it's like. We only see a little bit, but we trust that God knows the big picture. And he puts it together. And when we fall, we get back up again. We partner with the Holy Spirit. Today on all of our campuses, I'd like you to stand with me right now. And I want to do a couple things. One, I want you to think about all the people that are in your life. If you're married, your marriage relationship. If you're a parent, the kids. If you're a child, your parents. If you're thinking of work or school or the people that are around us. I want you to think in terms of God is sending me there because he's got purposes to prevail. I'm a part of his plan. I'm not a random mistake. 
I am sent by God to be here. Okay? And if you can begin to do that, you can begin to declare his truth. Well, he'll take the disconnection that you see all around you or that you feel internally. And he'll take it all and he'll weave it all together if you partner with him and align with his purposes. And we can begin to declare, in fact, pull those cards out again. We can begin to declare this not only our workplace, but our homes and our cities. You ready? Declare this with me out loud. Say, God's favor and prosperity over my workplace. Okay, read right along with me. God's blessing over my boss and coworkers, that this will be a place of joy, peace, and unity, safety, and health for employees and their family members, that my workplace will value what God values. And we begin to trust that this is the truth. We declare the truth. We stand on God's promises and we win his battles because we are connected to heaven and he has connected us to our world. Jesus will use each and every one of you if you partner with him. This is what I want you to do. We're going to pray here in a moment. And once we begin praying, I'll toss it off to the other campus pastors in Maple Grove and Elk River. But I want you to just take your hands like this. I want you to imagine with me right now all the people that are in your life. People that work for you, people that you work for, coworkers, classmates, teachers, family, people that are important. I want you to imagine them as if there are photos in your hands. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take them as if you're partnering with God and lift your hands up to heaven. And then for the next 45 seconds, I want you to pray out loud. God, I, in the spirit perhaps, and let the spirit begin to partner with you. Come on, just lift your voices. Just lift your voices and say, God, I'm, I put them in your hands. I put my life in your hands, my work in your hands. The people I interact with, I want your blessing on their life. I want your favor and your prosperity. I want, I want my bosses and coworkers to be blessed. I want the joy and the peace and the unity and the safety and the health. I want that all over my life. God, we give it to you. 